Hello everyone, it's July 11th, 2023. Last week, Ariane 5 launched for the last time, so we're taking a retrospective look at the famous rocket, then we'll discuss the noticeable void it has left behind for ESA. Ariane 6 isn't ready just yet, Vega C is out of commission, it's gonna be a hard transition, just like my intros, and liftoff! Hey, Welcome to episode 417 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Welcome back, Dennis. Thanks. <laughs> so um, one thing that we might be talking about next week, probably just as a short and sweet, is uh, there's a Falcon 9 that's going to be launched today, tonight, as we record. And this will be a new record-setting 16th launch Ooh, for this for first stage. Yeah. There's another one that's tied for 15, but this one's going for 16. So that's where we stand right now with these things. So... Really impressive. And this booster was the one that the first one to launch uh, a crew during, was it the Demo Mission 2? Mm. I forget the exact name, but like, yeah, I think it was Demo 2. Demo Flight yeah, 2. Demo 2, yeah. yeah. So, what, what, like way back when we started the show, what was the target that they needed to hit? Was it, was it 10 reuses made it, made it worthwhile? I think that was their realistic target. Yeah. And then they bumped it up to 15. And now, since they've hit 15, they say that they're going for, I think, 20. Well, I mean, yeah, you're going to go for as many as you can. It was just, like I, f- I feel like there was an over under like if if they could hit this number like it would pay for all the development and like it was actually a worthwhile endeavor to like refurbish and do all this stuff i mean i don't even know if, if that's the case or if that was the goal i don't even know if 10 was necessary it was probably less than that i want to say maybe just a couple reuses yeah. and their prediction at, at least at the time was that they were going to use these things like you know a hundred times and i remember we both yeah. thought that's never going to happen um <laughs> so i mean we're, we're more than 10 percent of the way there but the, <laughs> still leaves a hell of a lot of way there so yes yeah, so this is booster 1058 it's done some good stuff demo two uh a couple other one-off missions and then just a bunch of Starlinks and yeah. it's going for another one. According to Wikipedia, it hasn't flown at all this year, which for, I mean, <laughs> admittedly, of course, 15 going on 16 launches is incredible and everything, but mm-hmm. given how prolific it's been, I'm kind of surprised that we're halfway through the year and it still hasn't flown. Come on, Booster 1058. <laughs> Get it together. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if it's flown 15 times, you know that that's they're, they're going to take extra care <laughs> before they launch it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, just being, I'm just being silly, yeah. Au revoir, Ariane, uh, specifically Ariane 5. Uh, so it had its final launch a couple days ago, and uh, there's no Ariane 6 yet. Uh, Issa's kind of in limbo here with uh, rockets, huh? A little bit of a pickle. Kind of like NASA was uh, with crew launch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> except, ex- except in this case, it's just launch period. Um, so... Yeah, that's not great, but hopefully not long lived. So there's, you know, some other vehicles on the horizon. And since we were just talking about Falcon 9, very reusable first stage, it's interesting to point out that I think when Arian 6 was being developed, and now at this point, it's been what, 10 years or something, the thought process was that reusability just is impossible. Mm. So let's not design that kind of a system. So the next rocket that hasn't made its debut yet won't even be reusable, which is I mean, I'm interested to see how that goes. And, I, and obviously, this is a highly subsidized launch vehicle. That's just how like, ESA does it. But I don't know if it's going to remain very competitive. But it's hopefully will still be very capable, just like Ariane 5, which you can't complain about that. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Its development happened at a very unfortunate time. 
uh, in terms of just uh, predicting where the market was going to yeah. go. <laughs> yeah, because if it was even like just a couple years later, right, I think that they wouldn't have seen it as a pipe dream. They would say, oh, we need to develop a at least a partially reusable system here. But by that point, you know, I guess they had hit a point of no return and uh, they were committed to Arian 6 as it was. Grasshopper was starting to do its first hops in 2012. So the idea of reusability hadn't been proven out yet, but was... And of course, you know, shuttle is reusable in a sense, but like the Falcon 9 style of like game-changing reusability was just starting to be tested at its earliest uh, iterations with Grasshopper doing its hops. But um, I guess that was not enough to have it pivot. But yeah, so going back a number, Ariane 5, one of the nicest looking vehicles, the first good looking Ariane, actually, if you look at one through four, they're not very pretty looking rockets, but... um. But yeah, yeah, it just had its final launch, which uh, we talked about was, um, I mean, <laughs> related to everything you were just saying. It was sending a pair of geostationary satellites to orbit, uh, Syracuse 4B for France and Heinrich Hertz H2Sat for Germany. And like that was the whole thing when they had Ariane 5 is it's like, hey, having the capability of not sending just one large geosatellite, but two of them by using their kind of, you know, payload interfaces where you kind of got this cone that's, you know, hollow underneath and you put the one payload on top of the cone, you put the other one inside the cone. And so you can have them sitting on top of each other. Yeah. Uh, but this, yeah, this mission VA-261 uh, capped it all off. 117 flights over 27 years, which, uh, you know, for everyone listening, think about how old you are and think, <laughs> subtract 27 years. And if you were born, how old you were or, you know, Ariane 5 might be older than you. But there were some pretty cool details about the vehicle I didn't uh, fully uh, know about until kind of looking uh, at it to kind of commemorate its final launch. Initially, it was crew rated, which I still think is a, is a shame. I mean, I understand why Europe doesn't have a crew rated launcher, but... Uh, Back in the day when they were talking about Hermes, that kind of space plane, they had looked into uh, Ariane 5 also being uh, a crew-rated vehicle, but uh, obviously did not go down that road and still aren't. But um, yeah, it, it, it started uh, you know with a, uh, a G variant after its name, um, the Ariane 5 G, which stood for generic. And that could take 6.9 tons to GTO, because again, this thing was all about sending big birds to Geo, although that's not all it did. It would also take the uh, ATV, those European uh, uh, cargo resupply vehicles to ISS. Mm -hmm. So it could do that kind of stuff too, of course. Um, but to give you a sense of its evolution over those 27 years, it started at 6.9 tons of GTO. And then the most recent one, which we always love talking about, the ECA variant, uh, Evolution Cryotechnique A, uh, could take 9.1 tons to GTO. So that's a pretty big bump there. And that's because of uh, improved engines, um, the upper stage, uh, uh, first stage engine, both of those uh, kind of improved. When you look at this beautiful rocket, right, it's got the two uh, strap-on boosters and otherwise just has a really good, I think it's the aspect ratio is what makes me always like the way the Ariane 5 looks. Like it's got a good, it's got a good aspect ratio. Those solids that are uh, on there, the two of them on the side, um, as solids often do, <laughs> provide most of the thrust, uh, 90% even. So that's uh, – is that more unbalanced than um, – uh, when I say unbalanced, I mean like is that an even greater share of the first stage thrust than the shuttle? Because I can't remember mm. – the shuttle has two numbers for control authority and thrust. And one of them is I think in the 70s percent. But 90% of the thrust for the shuttle SRBs, that could be. I mean, those things are 
obviously ridiculous. So I'm finding that the SRBs provide 71.4%, so not as much, hmm. but okay. you know, still a lot. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and I'm assuming, and I mean, the SRBs have to be more powerful than these solids because it's so. So that's more of a statement of having three SSMEs firing at right. the same time yeah. to, pick up that, <laughs> to pick up that extra thrust. Yeah, but but still, um, you know, these these are pretty you know badass. Uh, you, when you watch one of these launches, you can just see the uh, the exhaust of you know a really big uh, three segment solid uh, just blasting out there. And so these are um, obviously I'm gonna you know I guess uh, anglicize the pronunciation of all the uh, initials. And so this is the uh, the EAP. Um, or the uh, Etage Acceleration à Poudre. Uh, sorry, David, I really wish you were saying all of these. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Good enough. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, we talked a bit about uh, before the show, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, name for the, for the stage where it, it means the uh, uh, powder acceleration stage. And so powder, of course, being the reference to what is the uh, solid fuel grain. And so uh, it's, it's ammonium perchlorate, uh, aluminum powder to give it that extra energy, and then uh, polybutadiene to act as the binder and fuel. And so kind of a, I guess, a fairly standard uh, combination there. It's, it has three segments. If you ever look at them carefully, and that's, you know, there's the little uh, angled nose bit at the top, but then there's the three segments. And if you look, uh, the first segment, which has a bunch of flags on it, is actually really small compared to the other two. And they actually go and fill that one up in Italy uh, before shipping it to, uh, you know, French Guiana, where all the Ariane launches take place. Um, that's an, also an interesting feature about how ESA uh, uh, and Ariane Spas and, you know, European launches are, where they have to go and build these rockets in Europe or components of them in Europe and then bring them over across the Atlantic to uh, uh, the northern coast of South America. And so anyway, that one is filled in Italy, but the other two are filled... Uh, uh, with their grain uh, on site at the spaceport at the uh, what's called the UPG plant or the uh, Usine de Propergal de Guyane. So that's, I guess, the Guyane uh, propellant uh, plant. And so they actually do that on site, interestingly enough, before they uh, assemble the whole thing and then uh, ship it on a rail to the launch site itself and uh, launch it. And this was something that I also found was an interesting fact. Occasionally, just like shuttle SRBs, they would uh, occasionally equip these with a parachute recovery system. And so I guess some of these uh, solids were reused to an extent, right? After, you know, an extensive refurbishment of yeah. splashing down in the Atlantic. Yeah, so there's that there's that European partial re reusability right there, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, good enough. Yeah. And so the core stage uh, is a uh, is a Vulcane 2, uh, at least on the ECA, and that's uh, Hydrolox. Uh, that stage is called the EPC, or the uh, basically the uh, first stage cryogenic, or cryogenic first stage, I should say. And that has uh, 1.14 meganewtons of thrust and 431 seconds of ISP. So quite a uh, an efficient yeah. first stage engine. That's, you know, that's Hydrolox for you. And then this upper stage, which has definitely a name I've never read or looked at before, the HM7B, which had replaced uh, Hypergall engines in earlier variants. But on the ECA, the, you know, the final kind of variant of the Ariane 5, this, this HM7B was also Hydrolox. And that's part of how you got all that extra uh, payload capacity to GTO. And so uh, that stage called the uh, EAC, or the cryogenic upper stage, uh, had much, much, much less thrust, uh, 62 kilonewtons, but 447 seconds of ISP. 
So again, climbing into these really high yeah. uh, numbers for efficiency. So really cool. But yeah, um, you know, I guess to give uh, Ariane 5 a nice send off, we could talk a little bit about its history and then we can get into the real news, which is this launch gap <laughs> that uh, you were talking about at the top. Um, but uh, yeah, so like I said, 117 flights over 27 years. Development um, originally began in the 1980s. And so uh, I guess it, it did... Uh, accurately peg that going to geo was going to be a big thing continuing forward and so having that kind of dual geo use is very helpful for that maybe not so much for the Ariane 6 but uh, it had a it had a tough start its first launch was in uh, june of 96 um so almost yeah almost well we just passed its uh, anniversary i guess uh and it was a v88 and uh, this one carried uh, a, a, a quadruplet of ESA research satellites called Cluster. And this is the one, one I think, Ben, you talked about as a Twisif, where they had this integer overflow software issue that caused it to crash because they didn't like update the software from the Ariane uh, 4. And as a result, it kind of, it got all screwed up and veered off course and completely broke apart on mm. Ascent. Yeah, like, like it, like they didn't, like the something about the software wasn't updated. And so it basically exceeded, you know, how many, uh, I see this is where I don't have the good, uh, language for computer science, but right, like it, it kind of, uh, saturated how much uh, information you could contain in that number. I mean, you get, you can think of it as a clicker, like one of the, like stadium occupancy clickers where they're just like, click, 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 counting people. Mm -hmm. Well, it only goes up to 999. You go to a thousand, it rolls over to zero. <laughs> like that's all, that's all an integer overflow really is, hmm. is your counter rolling over back to zero. Sometimes it gets worse because, you know, the one that you should be carrying can get pushed into a different segment of memory and screw up another number. But like, it's hmm. pretty easy to just go, yeah, just roll over zero. But I, I mean, I don't really remember that exact issue definitely something that i would uh be attracted to for uh Tuisif, but I, I don't remember this exact one now <laughs> i'm pretty sure someone talked about it unless uh there were even more Ariane made an or uh, Ariane first flight failures <laughs> that i'm forgetting about but wasn't there one and it might have been something else that launched from french Guiana, but there was the one that had the wrong launch azimuth remember that because it was from a different pad yeah that sounds familiar too I remember that one, yeah. And I assume that that's not this one because it was because it was from a different pad. And if this is the first launch, well, then that's the first pad, you know, the first launch pad that anything mm. ever launched from or that any Ariane 5 did. Um, but maybe it was some other, it could have been like an Ariane 4 or whatever, or who knows what. But I just remember that famous failure. Uh, so it, it kind of went over land and went into this completely wrong orbit. Or maybe, no, I think, it, I can't remember if they actually blow it up or not um but yeah there is that one yeah. but i guess that's not this one not not to be mean about it but it sounds like i mean ariane series in particular has had a lot of notable failures <laughs> that we can uh, talk yeah. about like a, a wonderful history of failures so after that you know try try again and so uh a little over a year later in october of 1997 they had their second launch uh v101 and this one was a partial failure. Evidently, there was some excessive uh, roll torque during the first stage flight, and it had to do with the uh, the engine as well as a uh, a rod um, that was holding an exhaust line in place uh, snapping. And so, uh, I don't want to go into much detail about that because that could be an interesting event to really uh, dive deep into the the failure analysis there. But the upshot is that they were able to get the payloads on orbit, but there was still um, 
some issues and not entirely sure if those payloads, uh, if it was successfully, uh, if they were able to be successfully deployed or anything like that. And um, just a little foreshadowing too, uh, as far as this launch gap that we're talking about, um, the first Ariane 5 flight, right, if you heard, I said was V88, while the second one was V101. And part of that is because there were still Ariane 4s flying in the meantime, in between time. And so... Uh, that's why the number jumps up like that, and and it's I'm I don't want to commit to it because I didn't look at this ahead of time, but I think they might if Vega was around then Vega flights might also get the kind of V designation for the missions. I'm not entirely sure though, but that's at least part of why that number jumps from 88 to 101. But in any event, it was the third launch in October of '98. Another one year later, that was a success, and you know it had a bunch of satellites that I don't know too much about. Um, and yeah, after that, it had a, you know, it had some more failures, uh, only a handful, but it had many, many more successes. And so overall, a really high success rate. And uh, and, and pretty cool. The, I talked about the first three launches. The fourth launch was XMN Newton. So that's a pretty uh, prestigious uh, launch to go and have there. And that kind of uh, set off the stage for uh, Ariane 5 really having taken so many large uh, astronomical payloads to orbit. Like it's like space telescopes in particular. It's it's just really, really cool. I like most recently JWST. Um, it took uh, Planck as well as Herschel at the same time. Herschel, a farm for red telescope and Planck looking at the CMB, cosmic microwave background. Um, like there was just uh, so many that it had uh, launched over the years uh, that, you know, really, really great legacy for the Ariane 5 as far as that goes. Yeah, I mean, what else we got? Oh, Rosetta, right? Visiting a comet as well as, uh, well, Galileo's we'll talk about later. These are the, uh, the European... Uh, global navigation uh, satellites, so like, you know, the GPS uh, that they have in Europe. But yeah, so really, really great uh, send-off Ariane 5, uh, and well, I guess we're going to have to wait until Ariane 6 before we start seeing uh, any more Ariane flights, but we've got a little bit of time <laughs> until that happens. And um, yeah, it's pretty uh, unfortunate because Ariane 6 was originally planned for three years ago in 2020. And most recently, you know, after slipping and slipping, it was scheduled for quarter four of this year, 2023. And that people are sure they are not going to make. And so it is likely, I mean, almost certainly it sounds like going to get slipped or is going to slip back into 2024 next year. And um, some of this comes from uh, some executives at OHB, which uh, uh, produce a number of the components for the, uh, the, the launch vehicle. And uh, they, they've been saying, you know, they think it's going to be early 2024, but no later than May 2024. So, uh, you know, this can always you know slip further, but hopefully by the first half of next year, we'll finally get to see the Ariane 6 launch. And uh, that'll be that'll be good. Um, because, you know, it's it's more powerful and capable rocket than the Ariane 5. Although, like you said earlier, David, that it doesn't quite meet the zeitgeist of where uh, launch vehicles are going uh, nowadays. Mm -hmm. But yeah. And so the, uh, the, the, you know, the Ariane 6, it's still working on... Uh, 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 hot firing its upper stage, uh, as well as uh, uh, basically hoping to build the. Uh, they need to actually build the first flight model. Period. So uh, they're they're aiming to do that in November uh, in you know French Guiana. Um, but but where does this launch gap come from? Well, okay, so there's a there's a gap between Ariane five and Ariane six. But is that is that the only you know launch vehicles that you know Europe had access to in 
in Europe. And when I say Europe, of course, I'm talking about, you know, ESA and the European Union, because Russia is also a part of Europe. But that Russian vehicle, the Soyuz, obviously, ESA does not fly on Soyuzes anymore, Soyuz I, um, because of the uh, invasion in, uh, in Ukraine. And so, okay, well, are there any other vehicles Europe has? Well, there's the Vega C, the, the improved uh, version of Vega. And uh, great show last week, guys, by the way. Um, you had just talked about the issue that they had with their uh, Zephyr 040 uh, engine. Mm-hmm. And right, so this is, you know, topical. And so uh, because of that, Vega C is grounded. And so ESA cannot launch their payloads, which they have a whole bunch of on Vega C's either. So they're losing things left and right. Now, interestingly enough, after Vega Sees woes. Um, they've they've now scheduled the original Vega Vega Nazi uh, to uh, resume launches later this year in September, um, and so it does because it doesn't use that Zephyr 40 engine. So whatever's going on with the the nozzle insert or sorry the throat insert uh, shouldn't be uh, an issue. Apparently, it's not the throat insert though. Now it's it's something maybe more fundamental to the engine to itself? the upper stage itself. Yeah, so oh. it could be a bigger problem. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because I was going to say, it sounded like, based on what you said, that they kind of resolved the whole throat issue. You know, new manufacturer, yeah. building it more to spec, etc. Okay, so that so there goes Soyuz, there goes Vega C. Um, you got Vega later, but Vega can only do so much. And similarly, uh, what's exciting uh, that's happening in Europe is that these small commercial uh, launch providers uh, should be coming online soon. Um, the Spanish uh, uh, startup Miura... Or that's not that's the name of the rocket, the Mira One, right? They that one, uh, the Mira One is is a suborbital, I believe. But that they 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 recently kind of had to scrub their launch, and uh, who knows when they're going to fly. But uh, larger orbital ones uh, from ISAR Aerospace and Rocket Factory Augsburg should be coming online at some point, and that's cool. But those are not nearly as big and capable as an Ariane Six. No offense, they're addressing a different part of the market. That's not a problem. But still, there's this big gap that. What the Ariane 5 used to be able to lift to orbit, there really isn't anything that Europe has that can heave it to orbit. Um, and so I say that Europe has, but not that Europe has access to, <laughs> because, uh, you know, Europe and the United States, we're buddies. And so they've been moving, Europe, ESA uh, uh, has been moving missions to Falcon 9s, which, again, are just, you know, like we we're talking about, have just been such incredibly capable vehicles. And so, uh, yeah, so Euclid just launched uh, within the last week. Um, Hera, another planetary science mission, is scheduled to uh, uh, launch on a Falcon 9 uh, in October of next year, 2024. And uh, on top of that, there are also, you know, there's also one of these uh, Earth observing, not Earth observing, but uh, kind of uh, Earth monitoring, uh, kind of climate, Earth atmospheric monitoring uh, spacecraft called EarthCare. Uh, that they've announced is also going to uh, be moved onto a Falcon 9, although they don't have a date set yet. I guess they're still in the stages working on that. And uh, ESA officials are also negotiating uh, up to four Galileo satellites being launched on a Falcon 9, which is interesting. I don't know if they've ever done that before, but like, I don't know, when I hear of Galileo or GPS or GLONASS or whatever, that's like, you know, that's like national security, right? Or I guess transnational security in ESA's case, right? That's that's something where you're very touchy and protective of. So the fact that they uh, are going to launch some of those on Falcon 9s is, I think it's pretty cool. I, I like that. So thank goodness uh, the Falcon 9 is able to refly boosters 15, 16 times. <laughs> It'd be so awesome. <laughs> um, ESA is just kind of, you know, cringing right now and kind of like, you know, grinding their teeth. But they're hoping that once the... Uh, 
this gap closes and Ariane 6 and Vega C are back online, that, you know, looking back, people will just see it as a blip. Uh, that's their words, uh, Joseph Oshbacher's words. Uh, so fingers crossed that this won't be too much of a problem, but thank goodness the Falcon 9 is... Uh, is really, I mean, I'll just say it's kind of coming to the rescue in a sense. So to be fair, like it's there, it's flying. <laughs> They're kind of desperate. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to uh, short and sweets then. And Ben, what is the first one? Okie doke. Varda completes pharmaceutical manufacturing test on orbit. In-space manufacturing company Varda Space Industries, which had recently launched its first mission on SpaceX's Transporter 8 rideshare last month, announced that the spacecraft's experiment has been successful. The 660-pound satellite, built in partnership with Rocket Lab, performed a 27-hour experiment to produce crystals of the drug ritonavir, which is typically used to treat HIV. After data downlink from the spacecraft showed the test was successful, the final part of Varda's mission remains, to return the sample to Earth in a one-meter diameter re-entry capsule. And then next up, Lockheed Martin completes burst test of expandable habitat. Lockheed Martin has conducted a second successful inflatable habitat burst test. As part of NASA's Next Step program, it is testing the upper limits of the subscale version of its inflatable habitat before incorporating other components such as hatches and windows. In this most recent test, the volume was pressurized to 253 psi, nearly six times its max operating pressure before it burst. This burst pressure is consistent with the previous test proving the predictability and reliability of the structure. The next round of tests will be creep testing, which will determine the level of physical deformation over the lifetime of the habitat. And finally, Starlink interferes with radio astronomy. The Low Frequency Array, or LOFAR, recently identified radio emissions associated with Starlink satellites flying overhead. The frequencies that were detected are orders of magnitude smaller than the ones that Starlink uses for its communication transmissions, and are believed to be due to electromagnetic interference from subsystems within the spacecraft. Unlike terrestrial equipment, no such regulations for electromagnetic interference exist for orbiting satellites, and at least one of the frequency ranges observed is protected for radio astronomy by the International Telecommunication Union. So let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, we have just uh, we have two correct answers. One is Astro, and then another one who also gets bonus points is Psykyle. So congratulations for being the sole winner of bonus points. <laughs> the clue was, do you ever feel like a sample bag drifting through the wind wanting to sue again? And this is a clue which I didn't entirely get because uh, <laughs> this has something to do with a song and I wasn't familiar with it. I am familiar with the artist. I'm not that out of the loop. But uh, okay, so what is this particular event about, Ben? You, you don't need to be super into pop music to get this clue uh, as evidenced by the fact that I am not super into pop music. Um <laughs> Before I reveal the event, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Chris Radcliffe, uh, who helped me test my Mastodon to Wissif bot implementation. Um, so uh, we mentioned it last week, and I can confirm it is running. Uh, you can send in your guesses on Mastodon instead of uh, just Twitter, Twitter, yeah. Mastodon, Discord, email. <laughs> <laughs> we added another one uh, to the list. All right. This week in spaceflight history is the 20th of July, 2017. It was the sale of an Apollo 11 sample bag, uh, and it sold for $1.8 million. Uh, so I wanted to uh, kind of start this story in media res. Uh, so we smash cut 
to Sotheby's auction house, you know, the hammer slams down and somebody has uh, just spent one million eight hundred and twelve thousand five hundred U.S. dollars, which is a number that includes the auction fees uh, that known as the buyer's premium. And they and they've bought this this white bag that came from NASA. And um, it's like this this very important piece of, of space history. And then a year and a half later, the person who was selling the bag at auction uh, sues NASA, uh, saying that NASA damaged the bag that they sold and uh, that it didn't sell for quite as much money as it should have. Okay, so that's like our our like stinger. We play the um, the titles and we you know we get to see all the producers' <laughs> names and everything, and then we flash back to the actual beginning of the story. So uh, the year is 1969, and there are some humans uh, that are you know doing a very important thing. They're putting rocks into a bag for the very first time. Humans have never done this before. I, I mean, like. They're putting rocks into a bag uh, for the first time on another world. Um, mm. And like, to be fair, the, the rocks are from the other world. The bag is actually from the world that the humans came from. But these samples are like actually like really notable samples, all jokes aside. Um, these are the ones that were taken shortly after um, the one small step was taken. And we grabbed these samples like right away, just in case the moonwalk had to be cut short and we didn't get to the more like scientifically rigorous samples later on in the script. We like have some rocks, we can go home. It's okay. So, right. Uh, so these astronauts uh, put the rocks in the bag and then the rocks fly home with the humans. The bag also flies home with the humans. The bag gets back to Earth and is like this notable thing that's been in space. And so the humans decide to put it in storage and and keep it safe. Um, And at some point they decide not just to keep it safe, but to let people look at it uh, because it's a very important bag that had rocks in it. Um, And so it is lent to the Kansas Cosmosphere and Space Center. Um, And the head curator, uh, Max Airy, was not only a curator of this museum, he was also um, a private collector of of space memorabilia. Um, And he like legitimately bought and sold artifacts. Uh, But it turns out, unfortunately, he also stole items uh, owned by his museum and also items on loan from other museums, in this case, also NASA. (laughs) And he stole these things and he resold them and kept the money. So uh, Ari was convicted of money laundering and thrown in prison. Um, People don't like it when you steal bags that had rocks in them. And the judge decided that some portion of his collection uh, was forfeit and now the U.S. government owns it and we're going to auction it off. And so the U.S. Marshal Service is like in charge of confiscating items from his collection and then giving them to a third party to auction off. So for for some reason, the U.S. Marshal Service um, failed to consider that the person who was in charge of putting together the collection that they were auctioning off, um, was also known to not have owned everything that was in the collection that they're auctioning off. Like 
we knew that he stole things and I, I guess they, they weren't super careful or weren't careful enough to figure out what he legitimately owned and what he had stolen and needed to go back to other people. Um, and like, this is all made worse by the fact that folks who steal things tend not to keep great records. It's called a paper trail. Um, and, um, this bag was actually confused, uh, for one that was flown on Apollo 17 and was less important. Um, but anyway, the U S Marshal service wound up, um, selling this bag that used to have rocks in it from another world. Uh, the, the bag, uh, is what they sold, not the rocks from the other world. So the bag wound up being purchased in 2015 by a woman named Nancy Lee Carlson. And she thought it looked interesting. Um, due to the Marshall's documentation, she knew that it was flown in space, but she didn't know if the bag had ever been used for anything interesting, like holding rocks. She kind of had this inkling that maybe this is a more important bag than you might think. So she takes it home and she starts calling people saying, Hey, can you help me identify this piece of space memorabilia I have, or this, this space artifact. And, uh, Interestingly enough, one of the people she reached out to is Robert Perlman, who is um, the guy in charge of Collect NASA or Collect Space, which is like a fantastic website um, and also the primary source uh, for this uh, this week in spaceflight event. And Robert Perlman goes, oh, yeah, I know some folks over at NASA's Johnson Space Center. They can probably help you figure this out, you know, given that they were the originators of all NASA uh, things that flew in space. Right. So, um, Carlson says, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And she mails the bag to NASA. And so NASA looks at it and goes, Hey, there's like this gray dust on the inside, in the outside of this bag. It's mostly like in the seams though. And so they say, okay, let's sample the dust. And if it's lunar dust, then we can authenticate this as a moon bag. And so they take five samples. Um, they use tape to pull some of this dust out of the seams and they take all five samples and send them to the lab. And the lab doesn't even need all five. It tests the first one goes, yeah, this is definitely moon dust. So this bag has been to the moon and come back. Unfortunately for uh, Ms. Carlson, the U.S. government owns all the lunar samples that were collected uh, during the Apollo program. And like this is kind of like this crazy thing, right? Like they loan out samples for scientists to look at, but they never give up their ownership of those samples. They still own them. And they're just saying here, you can take a look at it, but give it back. And so whenever NASA identifies a sample that is somewhere that they didn't expect it to be, they call up the office of the inspector general, uh, the NASA OIG, and they say, Hey, uh, go fetch. And OIG goes and like demands that the person gives the sample back. And, you know, sometimes they litigate and they, they've been pretty successful. I don't think that they have, um, successfully recovered every single sample that was ever stolen, but like the, the vast majority they've been able to collect. Um, well, in this case, they don't have to do that, right? They already have in their possession the lunar dust that they would normally ask OIG to go find. And so I would really like to say that they called up uh, Carlson and said, hey, no, we're not giving it back. But unfortunately, Carlson like is getting antsy because they've had the bag for 
um, longer than expected. And she starts calling her contact who she gave the bag to. And he starts uh, giving her all these excuses about uh, taking sick time or, you know, somebody being out of town and like on and on. Um, and eventually like, I, th- I think it was OIG um, wound up getting back to her and being like, Hey, no, we're not. Uh, but they, they kind of strang her along for a little bit. It kind of sucks. Mm. So um, eventually she, you know, as she's getting presumably more and more pissed off, uh, NASA offers to give her uh, the price of the sale bag plus a thousand dollars as like a consolation prize. Like we're keeping this, but like, we'll pay you what you paid for it uh, at auction plus a bit, but like, well, just go away. Like this is ours. We'll, you know, have this weird idea of restitution and and we're done. And even NASA understands how weird it is that like this lady bought the bag from the U S government, but a different part of the U S government. And now NASA part of the U S government says, no, that wasn't what we meant to do. So we're going to keep it. Um, and so Carlson does a smart thing and she gets yet another part of the U S government in this case, the judiciary to go and get the bag back from NASA, part of the same government. And about a year later, uh, she was able to recover the bag. Like she sent it to NASA. They said no. And like a year later, she finally has it back and she now has an authenticated piece of space history and she does what she was intending to do all along which is sell it so she goes to sotheby's the gigantic auction house uh that usually sells like you know art um and she sells the bag in this auction that sotheby's puts together that's the first all space themed auction uh by the sotheby auction house it's actually pretty cool there's a link in the show notes um, and you can actually go and look at all of the articles that were on sale and some of them are really cool so Sotheby's before the auction they say yeah we can sell this and we estimate that the that this bag will sell for two to four million US dollars unfortunately the bag sold for 1.8 million dollars she did not receive $1.8 million. I believe she received $1.5 million because the 1.8 includes the, the fees. Right. And like, I find this whole thing kind of ridiculous. So, so my question is why did the bag sell for less than expected? Um, and my answer is that somebody put rocks in this bag. So of course it's not going to sell for as much as a brand new bag would sell for. Can't, can't argue with that logic. (laughs) Well, the thing is there's also an alternative explanation, right? Which, uh, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to get to that. So Carlson's lawyer winds up getting paid about half a million dollars. And so she goes home with somewhere between 1 million and $1.5 million. I can't track down the exact number because people are being weird with, uh, with numbers. Um, and I'm too lazy to create an account on Sotheby's to find the actual price and fees that were charged. But I know that she paid a little over half a million dollars to her lawyers. And so ultimately like she paid $995 in 2015 to get this bag and then sells it for a million plus dollars. Like pretty darn good investment. Not bad. Not surprisingly, um, the U.S. Marshals also expected the bag to sell for more money than it did. It finally sold for $995, but 
they tried to sell it three times over for $42,500 and it wouldn't sell and it wouldn't sell. And so they chopped it down to a thousand bucks and like, great out the door. So, right. So Carlson sells it for less than expected. Um, she blames NASA for the low sale price and she turns around and sues NASA a second time saying that NASA both brought bad publicity to the sale which, okay, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Like, I think this would only make it worth more. And she says, here's the alternative explanation. She says that they damaged the bag when they took samples out with tape, right? Um, now, look, I still think that the rocks are to blame uh, because the since the Marshall auction also didn't hit their estimated price, um, and that was long before the tape damage was applied. It can't be the tape is, is not the difference here. Right. Um, if anything, the tape damage increased the sale price, right. Going from a thousand to a million dollars. But I guess it also could be, uh, that the tape damage was responsible for auction houses, learning how to more accurately value space memorabilia because the margin changed dramatically. <laughs> NASA decided to settle out of court with her. They didn't let this go uh, to trial. Um, and they agreed. They've already given her the bag back. They agreed to give her an additional $50,000. And they agreed to give her back the four pieces of tape that remained after they had uh, presumably destructively tested one of them. And like, that's kind of where we sit today. Carlson has no bag. She has $1 million and she has four pieces of tape. Um, and NASA is out $50,000, a bag, and maybe as much as a gram worth of dust. Like NASA got their tails handed to them. Um, and they, they did not get their tails handed to them, uh, by Carlson. They got their tails handed to them by the U S marshals who weren't paying enough attention. Like, I don't know if they were paying mm. any attention. I'm assuming they were, but evidently it wasn't enough. Now Carlson's story doesn't quite stop there. She is told by this law firm that she needs to sell the tape right away and give them part of the money from the sale. Um, and she says, well, no, our agreement on paper says that you get a percentage of the $50,000, the settlement. And it says nothing about the tape. So like I get to keep the tape, I get to sell it if I want, and I get to keep the money. And as far as I know, she has not sold it. Um, and she hopefully has it in a very nice display box uh, in her house. As far as I know, the company, the, the law firm that she fired has been absolutely unable to do anything about uh, the fact that they didn't get their tape money. And, you know, she's an attorney, so presumably she has enough money that none of this really matters. Um, but hey, you know, like I would act pretty crazy if I had. Um, such an important piece of space memorabilia. Like I, I would not want it in my house. I would want it <laughs> somewhere where it's actually going to be safe. Cause I've seen things that happen to bags, uh, bags that have carried or not carried rocks in my house. They get destroyed. Um, so like she can, she can do what she wants and I, I refuse to judge her for it. But anyway, that's this week in Space Flight History. Some some rocks were put in a bag, and the bag went on you know this crazy journey. I'm going to have to read that article by Robert Perlman, Collect Space. Yeah, it's good website. If you if you go to, I think I've got two linked. If you go to either one of them, they both link to a bunch of other Collect Space articles. So you can 
walk your way down this rabbit hole pretty deep. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a pretty good one. I mean, like it is we, quite we the like story in space better than not in space, but yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, that's an awesome twist of, uh, an atypical one for sure. But uh, okay, so I guess maybe next week's will be more in line with the typical This Week in Space Flight history. The uh, date range is the 18th through the 24th of July. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 2011, Radio Parasol. All right, Radio Parasol. And if you have a guess as to what this clue is referencing, just give us an email at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon and use the hashtag thisweeksf or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord to join our discord and just type slash TWSF or TWSF. And that'll uh, give the guess to our Tombot. So it will be properly sorted, Categorized, collated, sorted? allocated. Collated, yeah. <laughs> Categorized, yeah. Good, mate. Good words. <laughs> Moving right along then to upcoming spaceflight events. We just got four of those today, and thank you to Launch Library 2, where we start our research each week. And what's the first launch, Ben? Okay, so first up is a launch of a Juchui 2. This is uh, Land Spaces, like new Methalox vehicle. Um, this is the the third launch attempt, and the first two were failures. One was a Juchui 1, and they failed tried to fly a Juchui 2 and it failed. Although I think it got to space. Wikipedia notes it as the first Methalox powered vehicle to make it to space, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, mm -hmm. And so they're, they're going again. Hopefully uh, they will be successful this time. Uh, it doesn't look like they have any payload on board that they've announced. Um, they may have like some CubeSats or something, or it might just be a mass simulator. But one way or the other, uh, this mission is called Flight 2 which really confused me because it's the third flight and it's going to be launching sometime uh, between Wednesday, July 12th at 0553 hours UTC uh, to 0814 hours UTC. Uh, and that's flying out of the Juchuan um, launch center in China. And then next up, we've got a Falcon 9 uh, Starlink launch, uh, Group 515. So you know how these go. Uh, this launch is slated for July 13th with a window from 0435 to 0606 UTC. And uh, it'll be flying out of the Cape at Slick 40 to go to LEO, as Starlinks do. All right. And then after that, on July 14th, we have the launch of Chandrayaan-3 following Chand the Chandrayaan-2 mission, which uh, was a failed mission. This one's a little bit simpler. It just has the lander and the rover, so no satellites that will be orbiting the moon. I think that's the primary difference there. But other than that, it's still going to be roving around doing experiments, apparently doing chemical analysis on on rocks, so more more moon rocks. Yeah, will it put them in bags? Yeah, <laughs> maybe putting them in bags for a future auction. Um, and it'll be collecting data on moonquakes and thermal properties of the lunar surface, all that kind of stuff. So this is launching on an LVM-3, which is a GSLV Mark III. The launch time for that will be 0800 UTC through 1000 UTC on the 14th of July from the Satish Dawan Space Center from the second launch pad. So yeah, check that one out. That one's going all the way to the moon. All right. And finally, it's Baby Comeback, which is <laughs> uh, an Electron mission. I feel like 
just from the mission name, you know that it's a rocket lab mission. <laughs> um, so uh, on board is uh, the Starling project uh, from NASA, which is like four CubeSats um, doing like swarm kind of stuff, proof of concepts. Um, there's also a demonstration satellite from Telesat and two 3U satellites carrying GNSS R0 payloads, which is pretty cool. Are they are they listening or are they broadcasting GNSS signals? Radio occultation is what the RO sounds for or stands oh. for. Oh. These are the ones that are probably listening for GPS, like or the sound com- or the signals coming from GPS and they're looking at the, G- the that spacecraft through the Earth's atmosphere and seeing how the atmosphere attenuates it so you can study the oh. atmosphere. Using that another really spacecraft's cool. radio signal. Yeah. Huh. That is really <laughs> well, that's cool. cool. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. So this Electron is going to be flying sometime between Friday, July 14th at 2330 hours UTC and Saturday, July 15th at 0130 hours UTC. So like, what is that? Two hour window there. And uh, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Which means it's time to do with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Colin, Ryan R., Astro, Chris, a.k.a. Stye Garfield, The Greek, Citronaut, Delta V with a Space, Leon Running Man, and Moritz for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show please tell a friend or better yet leave us a review wherever you listen you can visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our patreon campaign and affiliate links get in touch find links to our mailing list discord server and a mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about or you can skip all that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com all right so that's it we will see you all next week on orbit until then later bye everybody see you